Hello and welcome to the Dogwood Podcast for March 2018. My name is Lisa Sammartino. I'm Dogwood's uh, democracy campaigner, and I'm here with... Hi, it's Kai, uh, erstwhile sometime uh, podcast host, and uh, I'm not dead. I'm, I'm around. <laughs> We're not Wizard of oz you. It's still March. Barely. It is. Yeah, it's the Rare. March podcast. We, you know... <laughs> we rarely get the podcast out in time for the month. <laughs> we could just start calling it the april podcast i don't think people would notice people Uh, probably listen in april so (laughs) what's going on what is going on this last six weeks have been totally crazy it's been kind of like a movie we're seeing things like the fbi is investigating trump towers vancouver because of holborn holdings who is the developer and owner um their relationship with jared kushner um, yeah donald trump's son-in-law I love how all the Trump craziness has just fully spilled over yeah. to BC. It's like not even we're not even drawing parallels. It's not a metaphor. It's like, oh no, they were literally possibly moving foreign donations from spies through the Trump Tower in Vancouver. Um, we also have some scandals happening with Facebook. Yeah. Which also is with a big BC connection. Huge connection to BC. So basically, um, the whistleblower Chris Wiley from Victoria, hometown um, boy born and raised here, uh, started this company called Cambridge Analytica, um, which has been accused of orchestrating the Trump election in 2016, taking data from 50 million Facebook users um, and exploiting it for political purposes. But there's a BC connection because there's a BC company doing the same thing. Um, and yeah, pop- Wiley, Wiley called them the franchise, right? Yeah. He said it was the, the Canada office of... Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, it's called Aggregate IQ. They have been said to orchestrate the vote leave campaign success in um, in Brexit, and uh, and they're here operating in Victoria as well, and they're the, working with political parties here. That's right. The Greens. So the Greens have, I guess, tried to got, get in front of the story this week when they came out with uh, the fact that they worked with them in 2016 ahead of the election last May, and. In that capacity, Aggregate IQ, the same company that worked um, for for Cambridge Analytica and for for uh, Brexit, had access to tens of thousands of voter records through the Green Party database. And not just them, through the BC Liberals. Um, they were working the BC Liberals as well um, in the leadership races. So Todd Stone in this last leadership race um, was accused of making up 1,300 fake email addresses to secure his uh, leadership bid for mm-hmm. the party. And one thing Wiley said is that this is a company that really operates without regard for the law and certainly for uh, you know what anybody would consider ethical conduct or standards in an election. I mean, we don't have evidence in BC of anything beyond those fake membership signups but they were accused of operating in African elections, you know, targeting videos of people being murdered and dismembered to try to intimidate folks out of voting. Yeah, Cambridge Analytica said to be active in 200 elections around the world. Yeah, I mean, I think we're just still looking at the tip of the iceberg Mm -hmm. on this, but it is pretty uh, shocking to find out that a homegrown Victoria tech company has been involved in this stuff and the extent of their collaboration with political parties in Canada, uh, still not fully known. I mean, the federal government certainly contracted to Wiley Mm -hmm. under a new company, but it seems like there's a whole network of similar companies with, 
uh, a revolving door of the same characters who all have relationships to each other. And uh, they deny, of course, that there's any formal links between Cambridge Analytica and aggregate IQ. But uh, the testimony from Wiley says otherwise. And uh, I think we're still just scratching the surface on this. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of scratching the surface, there's another major story brewing um, with money laundering. Uh, So I think it's probably the biggest story of this week. David Eby was in Ottawa um, testifying before the Finance Committee about money laundering through BC casinos and a lot of other things. Um, We do have a clip from it, and I, I think he explains the story pretty well. So let's play that. So it was on one of my first days uh, as Minister Responsible for Gambling when I was briefed by our provincial regulator as part of the briefings I received as a new Minister Responsible. And the first words uh, that I heard at that briefing from a member of our uh, our regulator, the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch, uh, the first words were, quote, I think we are going to blow your mind, unquote. Uh, And Mr. Chair, I I can advise uh, my mind was indeed blown. Uh, The regulator walked me through extensive and overwhelming evidence of large-scale money laundering in British Columbia Lower Mainland casinos. I was shown video and photographs of individuals wheeling large suitcases packed with $20 bills, others bringing stacks of cash to casino cages. I was astounded by the audacity of those involved. on a purely practical matter, $800,000 in 20s is very heavy. It looked like they were helping somebody move a box of books. Um, but I was equally astounded that this activity had been taking place in British Columbia without an effective criminal, legal, regulatory, or policy response for almost a decade. Eby's uh, originally from Ontario. I mean, I think I could have told him, and a lot of people in BC could have told him, uh, what they were walking into when they took government. But yeah, it's it's just nice to see people finally acknowledge that, my goodness, we live on this whole bubble of corruption and lies, like the entire real estate market now and the fantastic gains realized by homeowners over the last decades uh, may well have been fueled in part by crime and by the proceeds of crime basically being pumped into the housing market. Yeah, I mean, This just really, I think reinforces that uh, things are not what they seem in Vancouver. And there's Mm -hmm. a reason why things are so broken. Uh, And I guess it's good that the government's finally putting their mind to it. Thanks to some pretty good journalists, Kathy Tomlinson of RCMP Investigations Straw Donors fame from last year, um, came out with that story about how um, fentanyl dealers are moving money from mainland China through the Vancouver housing market. Um, and now EB's added a phase two to the German report um, and a possible phase three with luxury car dealers. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like when you start tugging on one string on the sweater, the whole thing starts to fall apart. And the casinos are obviously an attention grabber because anytime you have people carrying duffel bags full of you know, drug-laced, wrinkled $20 bills into the cage in a casino and then walking out with, uh, with cashier's checks or, or, you know, trying to launder that money into, into casino chips. Uh, it, it, it's a good story, but I think what the casino story reveals is that that is just one entry point, uh, Mm. for this cash. And the ultimate destination is not a blackjack table. Mm -mm. It's, it's assets like housing and like luxury cars 
that are ways of parking illicit money uh, in a relatively safe and stable regulatory environment like Canada uh, so that you can hang on to your money, whether that's the proceeds of corruption, embezzlement, graft, crime, drug dealing, money laundering. So uh, the casinos are, are flashy, but it's not a surprise that the door has now been opened right. to all of these other sectors of the economy that are vulnerable to these infusions of illicit cash. E.B. says the problem is so bad that when he went to an international security conference, they actually had a name for it, the Vancouver model. The issue in British Columbia is so notorious and so severe that I was briefed on an international intelligence community training session in which international intelligence members were taught about something called the Vancouver model of money laundering. We are famous internationally, or more accurately, we become infamous for money laundering. In the Vancouver model of money laundering, a wealthy individual from China, a country with strict currency export controls, wants to gamble. A gangster will meet that gambler at a casino, offering cash in amounts as high as hundreds of thousands of dollars. In one transaction, $1.2 million in cash. The cash is the proceeds of gang crime. To pay, for the cash, to pay for the cash, the gambler agrees to transfer money in China from his bank account into a bank account under the control of the gang. The gambler walks the illicit cash into the casino, completes a FinTrack reporting form, buys chips, gambles, and on leaving either cashes out receiving a check or carries the chips out of the casino. Ouch. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a unique environment where uh, successive governments, municipal and provincial, have created a very permissive political culture and regulatory environment around foreign money moving into hard assets like real estate. And this is, I mean, blame for this lands on all levels of government. And uh, we can look back, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think it became obvious to most people in Vancouver that things were not normal in the housing market mm -hmm. 15 years ago. And so I think there is uh, a sense now that uh, a lot of those um, gains in terms of just the appreciation of people's land values were fueled by a destructive and in part criminal wave of money from God knows where. And now we are paying the consequences as a society. And, and so in a larger sense, we are also complicit in this. Yeah. What I don't, what I, like keeps striking me over and over again is EB walked in in July 2017. Why was this unnoticed for so long? I yeah. mean, he says that the casino money laundering has been going on since 2009 when um, the minister responsible, Rich Coleman, disbanded the integrated policing unit and it just went up. Ex-cop Rich Coleman. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is where the hard questions need to start being asked. And I think EB is really uh, just starting to follow this trail of breadcrumbs and it you know you start at the casinos and that's what takes you into the car dealers and it takes you to the uh real estate dealers but you know i think we're going to see that there are a lot of sectors of the bc economy that have been touched by this and we're really just at the beginning so hard questions need to be asked all along the way about how much the government knew and when they knew and why they chose not to do anything about it. And when you can point to those clear decision points, like Mike DeYoung and Rich Coleman deciding to ignore this problem in casinos, that's where I think the public really needs to hold those politicians accountable. 
Right. So the German report came out of a report that had been shelved on Mike DeYoung's desk and just sat there for two years before David Eby picked it up. Um, I mean, are we going to talk about political donations here? I feel like it's hard not to. Right. All of the sectors that happen to have a problem with money laundering also were very generous in terms of donating to political parties who were keeping the party going. Right. I kept, uh, last year when I was looking for the Ban Big Money campaign um, at political donations, I kept seeing Great Canadian Gaming coming up over and over again. I couldn't figure out why um, and just decided maybe they're just generous um, and maybe they just are. But in the two years before the last election, Great Canadian Gaming, who owns one of the casinos under investigation, River Rock, um, gave 120000 to the to the BC Liberals. And you kind of wonder about the timeline there, um, because that was around the same time they started giving donations, around the same time that this report was shelved. I'm not saying that's why, but there's some questions to be asked. It's always going to be hard to establish that causal link, but it's totally fair to say that there are industries and there are industry players that had a vested interest in keeping this group of politicians in power. Mm -hmm. And they donated cold, hard cash for those people to keep winning elections and keep governing the province. And those decision makers are the ones who chose to do nothing to regulate those industries. And I think we're going to see the same pattern the deeper we dig, not just into casinos, but into the housing market and into other econo- other sectors across the BC economy. Right. The housing market, of course, eight of 10 of the top donors to the BC Liberals um, were from real estate. Uh, New Car Dealers Association of BC, also a major donor to the BC Liberals, giving $1.3 million to them. Um, this isn't small, small change here. Yeah, and I think there's some questions to be asked. So not only did the government turn a blind eye to money laundering and corruption within these industries that were in turn funding their re-election campaigns, there's also a pattern of government contracts and of public money going back to those companies that donated, which I think also deserves scrutiny. And that's really the other side of the equation, is is the, the companies and the political donors under the old system like to say, well, you know, what proof is there that we're not just engaged citizens and this is free speech and we just, you know go to these fundraisers and that's the only way to get to talk to government. And the reality is uh, there is a real ROI. There's a return on investment when you can donate $100,000 to a political party and when that government then contracts to your company for millions or billions of dollars. And that's what we saw for years right across BC. So CBC reporter Justin McElroy said on Twitter the other day, he just pointed out some of these highway contracts um, for the people who maintain the roads are coming up this year. Um, We looked at highway contracts last year and found that um, a third of the companies giving contracts to manage the highways are donors to the BC Liberals, and they disproportionately get more money and more contracts than anybody else. Um, So it'll be interesting to see this year if things change. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> time will tell. I, I have to say, all of this reminds me of my time as a reporter in Quebec, because I was there 2008, 9, 10, in the lead-up to what became the Charbonneau Inquiry, the um, big public corruption inquiry that had you know um, mobsters testifying live on TV 
and ended up touching almost every sector of Quebec society. But it started with these suspicious patterns of political donations mm -hmm. and with contracts that had been rigged uh, by snow removal companies, paving companies, super mundane stuff. But this is how this is how most of government's money is spent. This is how the sausage gets made is that we as taxpayers hand over money to the government and then they have to turn around and contract to people who can provide those services. And what companies in Quebec found was that if they all got together on the phone and agreed on what the price would be ahead of time, not only could they inflate the eventual cost to taxpayers of those services, but they could kick back some of the difference to the political parties in order to keep that whole gravy train rolling. And so in Quebec, they were able to do this even though they had the tighter donation restrictions, limits on individual donations, mm. and a total ban on corporate donations through the use of straw donors. And so just because you've banned corporate and union donations doesn't mean that people can't find a way around them. And, and what we saw in Quebec was that you know, everybody in one engineering firm would all give money at Christmas to the Quebec Liberal Party, uh, right down to the cleaning lady and the secretary and the people answering the phones. They'd all give the maximum donation, and then they would get reimbursed by the company, of course, uh, and that is an indirect donation or a straw straw donor arrangement that that is designed to circumvent these donation limits. And so you had companies that still found ways to pump money into the coffers of these companies or into the political parties, and uh, they were being rewarded handsomely. And it was those revelations that really started tugging on that piece of yarn, and that is what brought the whole Charbonneau Commission crashing down on their heads. Yeah, and, and some of those companies are working in BC. <laughs> That's a good point. SNC-Lavalin, yeah. who's been blacklisted from World Bank projects, is getting major contracts in BC and is also a contributor to our um, to the BC Liberals at the time that they were receiving those contracts. Yeah, I mean the 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 system in Quebec became complex and and sophisticated because they had to get around laws. Let's not forget until last fall right. in BC there were no laws. And so they didn't even need to uh, figure out ways around the corporate donation limits. They could just write a check directly to the party or have lobbyists buy a table at a fundraiser. Yeah. So in Quebec, what really got journalists' attention and started to rouse public suspicions were these patterns of straw donors, basically company employees all donating the limit uh, to political parties and then receiving these lucrative contracts in return. What happened next, after a bunch of investigative reporting, was the creation of a permanent police unit. They call it the Anti-Corruption Unit. And it was uh, launched by Jean Charest, the liberal premier at the time, in order to answer to public pressure around uh, what was perceived to be shady business, especially in the awarding of public contracts. That machine grew completely out of the control of the politicians that created it. Uh -huh. And that may be why we've seen reluctance in other provinces to create this kind of special police task force. Because if you truly create an independent investigative body with no partisan influence over who they go for, they're just going to follow the money. And what ended up happening was a bunch of Liberal Party fundraisers and then eventually politicians started getting arrested. And April 9th, we're going to see the deputy premier of Quebec go on trial for corruption. And that is what uh -oh. can happen when you put a police task force uh, in place and give them the resources to just start following the, that trail of breadcrumbs. And so 
I think as a precursor to a public inquiry or a corruption inquiry, what we really need is solid information. We, didn't, we, need, we need people who are not politically motivated, hmm. but are criminal investigators who have the power and the resources and the mandate to go after these guys. And yeah, there's some politicians that are going to go down. As a result of that, there's going to be some people hit by the shrapnel. And that is the price that you pay for restoring public trust in your democratic institutions. And I think it can't happen soon enough. So if you were a politician in government in BC, you might be worried about getting a little mud on you. On either side of the aisle. I mean, yeah, yeah. of course, the BC liberals uh, don't look good in this. The NDP, especially with their connections uh at the municipal level, they're going to see their friends and they're going to see uh, some of their fundraisers and they're going to see some of their colleagues come under scrutiny. But a healthy democracy can weather that. And in fact, it's better to know than not know. And so I'd be really disappointed if, for partisan reasons, politicians on both sides of the aisle, they've all got mud of them, okay? Like mm-hmm. the BC Greens just revealed that they hired aggregate IQ, which you know, did bad things potentially with a whole bunch of public voter data. Nobody is going to come out completely clean in all of this, but it's more important. I think the public will have more respect for all of them uh, if they're willing to at least appoint an investigative task force to answer those questions, because otherwise we're just left to assume the worst. But I think that politicians be more willing if there's a public call for this. Totally. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's what happened in Quebec. And it's it's one of the major differences that I've noticed, despite similar sort of uh, geography and culture. I mean, they speak French, we speak English. Uh, they get better poutine. But honestly, like, Quebec and BC are not all that different. What's different is the media culture. And what's different is that culture and the resources of investigative journalism. I'm happy to see that outlets like Metro are investing more in that. I'm happy to see Global nationally investing in investigative journalism. They just hired Mm -hmm. Sam Cooper. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he's now leaving Vancouver uh, where he did such great work on real estate. You know, and uh, McLean's other outlets are investing here and there in investigative stories, but it's just nothing like the scale and the concentration of what we saw in Quebec in the lead up to the Charbonneau inquiry. And honestly, it was that watchdog. It was the journalists who were digging stuff up almost daily that was forcing the politicians to respond. And that is ultimately what drove the police inquiry and it's what drove the the public corruption inquiry was the fact that the public, fueled by these revelations in the media, uh, were calling for heads to roll. And so, you know, without that information, without having some clue as to what we are looking for, it's hard for people who are just living their daily lives to think, how do all these pieces fit together and how does it affect me? And that's the job I think of journalism. Right. And once people have that lens, I feel like they'll start to see it everywhere. You know, like my dad was even like, did you know about this condo development that was growing next to my fishing lake? Yeah. Um, And that's sort of what starts to happen. You start asking questions. And I think those questions are the most important part of a healthy democracy. I mean, this is what we're going to have to keep an eye on now is all the other ways that industries have of, exerting influence over politicians, even once you bring in legislation. So it really is a bit of a game of cat and mouse. We've taken the first step, but I think what's more important is that the public starts to wake up to the problem and how it affects them, how it actually makes your life more expensive and your care less safe and your roads less safe to have uh, bid rigging, collusion, uh, padded contracts, and uh, kick back and graft. And if if you can start to get in that mindset of understanding how the public will and how the taxpayer is being screwed over 
by this criminal activity, you start to realize uh, that you just have to keep vigilant all the time because they're always going to find ways to get around the legislation and try to uh, advance some commercial interest through friendly politicians and government. And uh, so I'm just glad that people are awake to this now Mm -hmm. so that they can start to spot the signs and the patterns. And unfortunately, the biggest indicator that we've had in the last 10 years is the price of housing in the lower mainland. And because so many people were making a killing and getting rich on paper, there really wasn't the political will to look at this until now. And I worry that it might be too late. Well, and and some of the people who are getting rich were the politicians. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, DeYoung, right? Eight investment properties. Suzanne Anton, housing crisis profiteer. These people bought up multiple investment properties and then through at least indirect government action or lack thereof, uh, saw their own net value, their worth just climb through the roof over the last decade or so. So, yeah, uh, it's not hard to understand why we haven't tackled this until now. There's been enough people who have benefited enormously from this Wild West system. But I think there's people now, especially our age, who are not only starting to put the puzzle pieces together and figure out all the ways in which the deck has been stacked against them, but they're actually willing to do something about it. And uh, I'm glad that there's an attorney general who's at least willing to uh, to play to that crowd. Um, we do have... If the light bulb has gone on and you are feeling like you want to raise your voice about this, we do have a tool to start helping um, create that public drumbeat. Um, You can email David Eby uh, asking to start this special police task force that uh, Kai mentioned, um, and, and we have a petition for that. It'll be included in the show notes for this podcast episode. You can also find it at dogwoodbc.ca slash corruption dash email dash EB or just at our Dogwood BC website. Yeah, the politicians need to hear from their constituents on this because they're going to be hearing pushback internally within mm. all of the parties uh, because they don't want the, the sunshine pouring in. and They don't want uh, these questions to be, uh, you know, their dirty laundry potentially to be dragged out and they I think are afraid of a process uh, that is not fully within the control of the government but that is what we need and so if you want to see some (laughs) qualified criminal investigators actually start to dig into political donations and not just casinos the housing market and other sectors of the economy I think the first step is to put that pressure on David Eby, on the Attorney General, on the government, uh, to let them know that if they don't take this step, those questions are just going to keep building. Great. Thanks, Kai. This has been a crazy month, and it's going to get wilder when those reports start coming out. So Peter right. German is uh, supposed to drop his uh, his money laundering and casinos report, and now it's become serialized. Yeah. There's, there's... episode two and three. You can binge it. <laughs> yeah, and maybe more to come. Um what, what do our listeners think? What do you think? Um, do we need to get to the bottom? Do you support a police task force on this? Um, and when you look around your own community, what are you seeing? What do you have questions about? Um, you can send us a tweet at DogwoodBC. You can send us a Facebook message, also at DogwoodBC. Um, or an email, dogwood at dogwoodbc.ca. Um, 
and, and let us know. And if you liked our podcast, give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts from. Um, iTunes, Google Play, or just leave us a comment on our website. Uh, again, if you want to take action, we do have some resources to make it a little easier. Uh, first, sign the petition at corruptbc.ca, and then go to dogwoodbc slash corruption dash email dash eb and send Attorney General David Eby and a message asking him for an independent police task force. Um, And again, both those links will be available in the show notes for this podcast, um, so you can find them easily. All right. See you next month. Thank you. Bye.